Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Please don't forget, we have a matching grant campaign on now. Uh, we only survive because people like you donate. And so if you haven't donated already, or if you want to up your donation, it will be matched. And if you want more information on the matching grant campaign, just head to the Analysis.News website. And we'll be back in a second. On the 26th of November, 2020, a general strike was held across India. The strike was organized by 10 trade unions across the country and was supported by the Communist Party of India, the Communist Party of India Marxist, the Communist Party of India Marxist Leninist Liberation, and other left-wing parties. Trade unions estimate 250 million people took part in the strike. The strike was followed by a farmer's march to New Delhi, which arrived there on the 30th of November with tens of thousands of farmers surrounding Delhi, increasing to hundreds of thousands by December 3rd. As COVID savages India, which is amongst the worst affected countries in the world, the farmers of India continue their protest. By some estimates, the numbers have now grown to 2 million people. Now joining us to discuss the massive protests in India is Jayati Ghosh. Jayati taught economics at Nehru University in New Delhi for nearly 35 years. She's now joined the Perry Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's authored or edited 19 books, including Never Done and Poorly Paid, Women's Work in Globalizing India. And she's authored more than 200 scholarly articles. Thanks for joining us, Jayati. It's a pleasure. All right, so Jati, tell us the story of how the strike began and how it evolved into the uh, farmers' protest. Well, the workers' strike really came about because the government has used this period of COVID not to do anything for the welfare of the people, but to push through all kinds of laws that really they would have faced a lot of protest against otherwise. So they introduced four new labor codes which are supposedly designed to modernize uh, the labor laws. But of course, they basically end up disempowering labor and destroying the capacity of bargaining and reducing their ability to demand minimum wages, basic working conditions, easing the possibility of extending working hours and all kinds of things. Now, as you know, in India, 95% of our workers are informal and really do not have rights to speak of already. So the argument that you need to further deregulate to actually make investment more interesting is ridiculous. And it's just one of the many ways in which this government has seen, tried to actually impose various things which are deeply undemocratic using the pandemic as an excuse. The farmers movement is slightly different. It didn't quite arise out of that worker strike. It, emerged separately because along with those labor codes that they have brought in, the government also pushed through an ordinance in May, which was basically three farm acts. And then they called a special session of parliament and rushed through these acts within a few months without any discussion, without even allowing for a vote and simply announced through a voice vote, which is whoever shouts louder gets it, that these bills were passed in both houses. Now, these three farm laws, the farmers are very upset about because they essentially, they claim once again that they're going to modernize agriculture and they're going to do things to the benefit of farmers. 
But farmers have many concerns. They feel that this is going to open up the gates for predatory commercialization of agriculture. They're going to reduce the role of the state-run market yards, which provide a minimum support price for major crops like wheat and rice and sugarcane. And what this, uh, what one of the acts does is to bypass these market yards and say anybody can buy from you. And we all know what happens when you allow that, which is that the companies move in, they offer sweetener deals, you know, uh, to attract farmers. And then they basically, once they've got you completely under their control, then they put on the screws and they deny you your basic price. They put in quality controls. They do all kinds of things that do not give farmers the basic price. So the farmers have been saying, we don't want this. You claim this is for our benefit. Why didn't you discuss this with us? Why didn't you discuss this with the state governments who are in charge of agriculture and many of whom are opposing these laws? Why did you impose these new acts without even so much as an attempt to discuss them? And if you are so clear that it's going to be better for us, then make that minimum support price the legal minimum. So who benefits from these laws? This is really something that is going to benefit a bunch of cronies who are interested in entering agriculture in a big way, agri-processing and agricultural marketing. And the two cronies, Mr. Mukesh Ambani, who runs a, a very big network, telecom network called GEO. He's also the petrochemical giant. He's the richest man in the country and one of the 10 richest men in the world. And there's another crony, Mr. Gautam Adani, who was completely made during the Modi government in Gujarat. He was a nobody. And when Mr. Modi was chief minister, he emerged as a businessman. He is now one of the largest businesses in India. They have He's bought up almost all of the airports, even though he has no experience in airports. He's doing mining in Australia. He's doing all kinds of things. Now, both of them are interested in entering agricultural marketing. So the farmers have openly seen this as an attempt to actually ease the path of these cronies. What's very interesting is that part of the protest has actually been openly directed against Ambani and Adani to the extent that the farmers have uh, demanded of the supporters do not subscribe to the GEO network. GEO is the telecom network run by Reliance, Mr. Ambani's company. Which is like a cell phone and company. That's right, exactly. So within two weeks, two million subscribers left the network. Really? <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it's even more now. The, uh, the, the scale of the participation rate in the workers' strike and the participation in the farmers' protest and it seems from, I mean, I, I, I don't know that much about Indian politics, but the fact that in the workers' strike, uh, so many unions and then so many of these communist parties, and people don't understand that in India, communist parties are a big deal. They may not be uh, governing the federal government, but they do at times govern certain states and, and, they're, and they're big. At the moment, they're running the state of Kerala and doing one of the best jobs, even in terms of controlling COVID. But the uh, cooperation amongst sometimes these communist parties or competitors, uh, even the trade unions, it sounds like there's a, a growing level of unity taking place in this struggle. Is that correct? 
Well, you know, what's interesting about this strike, it wasn't, it was also, it was definitely the communist parties and their trade unions, but it was also a bunch of trade unions associated with other parties. Practically every trade union, other than those associated with the BJP, was involved in this strike. So there's fairly wide acceptance among the organized working class, you know, the, the ones who would be actually affected by these labor laws that these are really against their interests. And they have come together. And I hope this is a sign for the future that they will continue to come together. Because this is a government that is very clearly going to move as fast as possible and as rapidly as possible to destroy workers' rights. What's the approach of the Modi government in terms of some governments are introducing a real fiscal stimulus during this COVID pandemic and lockdowns, and others insanely still talk about austerity. Where is Modi in all this? He's in the far end of insanity. The Indian, <laughs> government, the Indian government has spent less in real terms between April and October this year than it did between April and October last year. The total spending of the central government has gone up by 2%. I, I'm not joking. In nominal terms, 2%, which means in real terms, because prices have gone up by about 5%, in real terms, it has fallen. They have spent less. Why have they spent less? Because they got less tax revenues, obviously, because it's a pandemic, you stopped everything functioning, you did a massive lockdown, the most stringent lockdown in the world. So obviously you will get less tax revenues. So then they are such, uh, shall we say, slaves to the idea of fiscal discipline that they actually have the incredibly stupid notion that if they get less tax money, they should spend less. And that's exactly what they have done. But every country seems, even Wall Street has figured out that you need to counter, uh, what's it called, counter cyclical, cyclical the spending. You, they want, the Americans, Wall Street, they want stimulus spending, Europe, Canada. I mean, how, how can Modi be on such a different page here? You know, the IMF has asked India to spend more. I mean, we are talking about... Uh, everything completely opposed to the basic economic rationality. And I'm unable to understand it because we don't have a big external debt. We don't have a big balance of payments problem. Whatever inflation we have is because the government is constantly raising the price of petrol through adding taxes on it. There's no reason to worry that, you know, spending more will be counterproductive. It's the opposite. The less you spend now, the worse your deficit will be because the economy will fall further and there will be less tax revenues as a result. For some reason, they're just not doing it. And we, we are unable to understand why. In that workers' strike and at the farmers' protest, is that one of the demands that there needs to be more support during these COVID recession? Well, that I think right now, these two, the, the farmers are definitely asking for more support. They are asking for price support to be continued and established. They're asking for a whole range of other things. And they're worried about investment for greening because they are already facing the impact of climate change. The workers were much more worried about their rights being eroded. So that was much more specifically about the measures that would prevent them from demanding support. But the informal workers of India, 95% of our workers, have got almost nothing. And they have been absolutely devastated. Livelihoods have been destroyed. You know, undernutrition has increased dramatically. There is evidence that people are eating one less meal a day. Children are going undernourished, and this is going to affect their development in future. We already have terrible rates of child stunting and child malnutrition. 
And all of this has got worse. How, how are people surviving? Did the, did the state provide any kind of support for people? Well, this is the crazy thing. The central government left everything to the state governments. They declared a lockdown nationally without even consulting the states. And then having done the lockdown, they basically said, threw up their hands and said, now it's your problem. And the state governments, some of them have been trying desperately, but they have no money. They, they are not allowed to actually raise taxes because of a new uh, goods and services tax, which is centralized. The central government owes them money that was promised as compensation. It hasn't given the full amount of money. It has told the states, you can go out and borrow more. So that's what they have done. They have borrowed more in desperation. But when the state governments borrow, it means that they have to repay. And they cannot print money. They have to cut their budget next year to repay this money. It's bizarre. It It makes no sense. Like, I don't get it. It's not like one of the reasons for foreign companies to invest in India it's not just because they need some cheap labor. It's because the Indian market is so damn big. It's a wonderful place to go sell stuff. But you can't sell stuff to people that don't have any money. Exactly. So, exactly. This, <laughs> there's something not computing here. So here all of us are, are knocking our heads saying, what on earth is going on? Why don't they do this? It's so obvious. And everybody is saying, please do this. Businessmen have said, please spend more. The IMF is saying, please spend more. You know, everybody is saying, spend more, and they're not. And the, the amount they've given for social protection is so pathetic. We are among the worst in the world in terms of what we've given for social protection during this period. Uh, really- I, I, my, my memory of what I, I was in India more than a, mm-hmm. almost two decades ago, but my memory is that there's about 300 million or so people who live at quite a good standard of living, almost West European level of standard living. And then you've got, what, 700, 800 million people who live in poverty. Is that still the case? I Well, you know, it, I wouldn't say that 300 million live in the Western standard of living. Now that I'm in the West, I no, it's maybe, uh, maybe 50 million are at the Western standard of living. And then there will be another 150 million who would have a working class style existence, um, a US working class kind of existence. And yes, the rest are in extreme poverty and destitution of a kind that I think people in the West just can't imagine. There is very extreme destitution, there's starvation. People are on the verge of starvation. So that's about 800 million people starving. Well, our uh, population is now 1.3 billion. So, yeah. So it could be even more. More than that, yes. That mar- the, the thing that always got me about the uh, demographic or this s- stratification in India, as even, even though, say, it's only 50 million living at a, a Western standard of living, that's like two Canadas, practically. And 150 million at a Western, more or less, level working class, like a stable working class level, um, that's an enormous market. So is it, is it partly that they don't care about the 800 million because they can't buy anything anyway? I think this, is, this was true for a while that they didn't care, but they were also living off the benefits of the previous growth where even the poor benefited. You know, the previous decade had seen fairly rapid growth. Real wages had increased. 
So it wasn't entirely, you know, I mean, it hadn't increased very much, but a little bit had increased. So they were benefiting off of that. What they don't realize is that you can't do that indefinitely because ultimately your domestic market still suffers. So we have seen investment in India declining ever since 2012. So now eight years in a row, investment has been declining well before the pandemic, when India was still seen as one of those you know, dynamic economies. When you say investment, you mean foreign investment or federal no, government investment? Domestic, domestic private domestic investment. investment. Big companies were investing abroad rather than in India. The medium and small companies didn't have the money, couldn't access the credit, and the market wasn't big enough. So because you are shrinking consumption, workers' consumption so much, that actually affects the market as a whole, and it reduces the incentive to invest. So, in fact, investment has been slumping for a very long time. And that has, in turn, created this chain reaction. Of course, employment anyway has been in very bad shape. We've had a decline in employment, absolute decline of around 9 million during the phase of rapid growth. And in this period, since this crazy pandemic, we've had seen further falls in employment. So we don't actually have the official data, but what has happened to employment is a shrinking not an increase. And that really means your market is shrinking and therefore you in that vicious cycle. Only government spending can get you out of this. And who is it that puts pressure on Modi to, to not get into debt? Uh, I, I understand the pressure for not raising taxes, but it's pretty obvious that even a certain amount of stimulus will come back to the government and tax revenue once things begin to move again. You know, this I find, I think fundamentally they don't understand economics and they're not interested in economics. And he deeply distrusts experts. He just really hates experts. So he has around him basically bureaucrats and those who will just say, you know, whatever you say is fine. And he's decided that this is not so important to spend on the people, to spend to revive demand. No. And the cronies are telling him, well, give us these other incentives, give us these subsidies, and then we will do investment. Recently, the finance minister, Nirmala Sitaraman, she basically threw up her hands and said, no amount of stimulus will be enough for this immense crisis. So don't do any. <laughs> so don't do any. Uh, now, now, the uh, Kerala, you said, is doing yes. well. So talk about what's going on there. Doing well in terms of how they're dealing with the pandemic. Well, Kerala is a very interesting uh, state because it's been alternating between a left and a sort of center, central, center-left government uh, between the CPIM, the Communist Party of India, Marxist, and the Congress Party. It every five years it changes government. The current government is actually the CPIM-led government. And in the early stages, they, the first case was actually in Kerala, the COVID-19 case, because of travelers from Wuhan, China into Kerala. Kerala has very high migration abroad. They dealt with it very well. They were the ones who actually insisted and kept asking the central government to put in a strategy of contact tracing, testing, isolating. They did it themselves. The first wave they managed to control very well. The health minister of Kerala, uh, Shailaja, she is a school teacher. She's actually been on the cover of Time as one of the people who's really managed the, the, this whole pandemic rather well. 
Unfortunately, they, they managed the first wave very well. They got a second wave. And the second wave was also because the central government did not allow them to put in place many conditions that they would have done to restrict people coming in and bringing infections in. So they've had another phase, but that too, they have coped very well. They have borrowed to provide social protection, to provide welfare to the migrant workers who are stranded, to people who have lost their livelihoods and their jobs. They're doing whatever they can, but they are running out of money. But are they allowed to borrow? They have. That's the only thing the central government did, is they allowed the state governments to borrow more. Now, it's a, it's, it, that state governments have no choice right now but to borrow more because you have to spend. And but borrow from where? Move. Where do they borrow from? From the Reserve Bank of India, from from the central bank, basically. But next year, they'll have to pay it back. So now, now the, India has its own currency. Uh, yes. It's not dependent on, uh, you know, they can print rupees. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so th there's no reason India can't be doing the same kind of stimulus that's happening in most of the advanced Western countries. Yes, absolutely. But why does, if I understand correctly, Modi is still pretty popular. This is one of those mysteries of contemporary politics that is very, very hard to explain. I think many countries have got rulers uh, who are popular for all kinds of weird reasons. Mr. Modi seems to have developed a very extraordinary connect with ordinary people, whereby he can somehow persuade them that whatever's happening is not his fault. You know, this is an act of God, the pandemic has struck. The fact that your government is not doing anything, that other governments across the world are doing so much more, people don't know that. The media is heavily controlled, it's completely subservient to the ruling party, the mainstream media. A few brave outlets, but they are, you know, he, he does everything he can to stop them. They have an army of social media trolls, and literally they call it an army. Like they have they have WhatsApp group armies, people who actually forward all kinds of misinformation continuously. And they they manage and control people's perceptions and understanding. So that even the people who have lost their jobs, people whose children have starved to death, people who have died of COVID because they were forced to congregate in these very unhealthy, crowded conditions in a desperate attempt to try and get home, even they do not blame the central government. Well, who do they blame? They blame their own local state government that you didn't provide, you know, something for me or whatever. They blame God or, you know, some natural disaster. So he's very successful in deflecting the blame and in persuading people that whatever's happening is very bad for you, but it's great in the other states and it's great somewhere else. So it's just your own situation, which is really terrible. But so overall, are, are, are there parallels between uh, Modi and Trump? Yeah, Trump has 80 million people that voted for him. I would say Modi is much more dangerous for several reasons. For one thing, he's smarter. I mean, let's face it, Mr. Trump is a bit of a loose cannon, right? I mean, uh, and he's in his own way a maverick. But also Mr. Modi has a whole fascist vanguard. He's got his stormtroopers. The RSS is, is an openly fascistic organization. They actually used Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiography continuously. The one country in the world where Mein Kampf is never out of print is India. 
because the RSS over decades is a, has been a big believer in Hitler's philosophy and approach, and they have an army of people all over the country. What is our RSS? The RSS is a very strange organization. It's called, it is short for Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh. The Union of National Volunteers would be the literal translation. And they are rabid. Uh, one of the members of the RSS is the man who shot Mahatma Gandhi. It's been banned periodically uh, in the course of Indian history. It, it was banned immediately after Gandhi was assassinated, but it was periodically, three or four times it's been banned. Now, half the cabinet are RSS members. Mr. Modi himself is an RSS member. The Home Minister is an RSS member. The RSS is very, very effectively controlling the government. And they have an army of volunteers. Uh, these, are, are these are extreme Hindu nationalists. That's right. That's right. So what's happening to the Muslim population uh, of India it's during this terrifying. period? It is terrifying. You know, there was a big upsurge of protest before this in 2019 uh, when the government brought in a law which effectively made Muslims second-class citizens. And again, it was rushed through parliament. It just happened and, and so on. And then there was a groundswell of protest where Muslim women would sit peacefully in sit-ins in different parts of Delhi, Bombay, across the country. Students were protesting. And it was a, a wonderful kind of occasion where it was really very, very uh, lively. And a lot of creative protest forms emerged over this period. The pandemic came as a wonderful present because they could immediately announce that the disease is spreading. Nobody's allowed to sit in, leave immediately. They had instigated riots against these peaceful protesters. There were uh, leaders of the ruling party who are on video openly saying you have to go out and shoot them, kill them, they're all anti-nationals, openly. There were people who went with guns to shoot. They're all out on bail. The people who were sitting peacefully are being imprisoned. Students, women who are sitting peacefully, men, Muslim men who were uh, helping in, in the sit-ins, arrested. Doctors who were providing medical assistance for people at the sit-ins, arrested thrown into jail with on all kinds of extreme terror kinds of uh, charges, which are very, very difficult to get bail. Mm. Is the left gaining strength against no. all of this? I wish I could say that the left was gaining strength, but the left is very, very weak right now. The state of Kerala is the only state really where they have uh, been in political power recently. But one way, one situation in which the left has been gaining a bit more strength is with the farmer movement, because the left has also got a farmers union and they have been very active in organizing earlier marches and protests. And even in this one, they are very strongly involved. But this particular farmer protest is sui generis. It didn't happen because of any organized leadership. It was farmers in three states neighboring Delhi who are particularly upset, who came to the borders of Delhi and wanted to enter and were not allowed. So we have the borders of Delhi are now fascinating. They're full of these tractors. Uh, people, the, the farmers have come in their tractors and there are thousands and thousands at each of these sites. There are 17 different sites in the borders 
where there are thousands of these people, old and young farmers, women, children, everybody's come. They had arranged that uh, every day, a hundred new farmers would come and then the earlier ones would leave, you know, to kind of give a relay. But what happened is that the earlier ones came, the new ones came, but the earlier ones are not leaving. <laughs> so it's just growing in number. And now they're being joined by farmers from all over the country in support. The, the left parties, there's at least three communist parties, if not more, three big ones. Uh, three, uh, is there really such difference politically between them? Like, is, and, and let me ask, is there, is there not, if there, maybe there is, but why isn't there one broad left front now? Or is there? Ah, uh, Paul, that's such a tough question. I wish uh, I have knocked my head on this very, very many times. There's very little in terms of real ideological difference. There was a time when the differences were quite sharp. But right now, I would say, frankly, we are dealing with a very powerful, very dangerous, very cruel fascist power. And it's not just the left parties, but all the parties that want Indian democracy to survive have to come together. I don't understand why this is not seen more openly and why a greater effort is not made. But unfortunately, it's, it's not happened yet. I hope it happens soon. Hmm. Yeah, it's rather important. Uh, India is going to be one of the deciders of what happens to humanity, not least of which on the climate question. If the issue of uh, uh, climate crisis and carbon isn't dealt with in countries, India, China, United States, Europe, but India is a major uh, factor in whether we solve this climate crisis or not. And is it be, does Modi acknowledge that there is a crisis? Is there anything happening? Oh, yes. He's very good at talking about it globally. He will go to all <laughs> the international platforms and say lots of good things. He's got various prizes. I think Japan gave him some environment award and all kinds of things. But it's, it's a kind of um, dealing with the climate crisis based on inequality, deprive the poor of their basic needs. The government itself, I mean, he's just got himself two new planes, aircraft, with, you know, a huge, enormous aircraft for flying around himself, which no prime minister ever had before. The government has just bought these. In the middle of the pandemic, he has announced that he wants to completely destroy the central vista of New Delhi, the old parliament house and all the central buildings and the president's house. Destroy all that and build a new which is going to cost billions of rupees, trillions of rupees. And he's willing to spend that and not give basic social protection to the people. Or not even give enough money for vaccines to be available for everyone. Oh, yeah, that's a question. How are they going to deal with the issue of vaccination? Well, they are hoping there are two candidates in India, one uh, which are semi-subsidized uh, by the government. And they're hoping that those two will actually produce results which are positive. They're both in the clinical trial phase. AstraZeneca is producing, and there will be some in India, available for India. Uh, there is a producer in India who's producing for AstraZeneca. So I think the government is really putting its hopes on these homegrown vaccines, because really the possibility of being able to afford Though the ones that are now being grabbed by the rich countries, that, that doesn't seem likely. And I know there's been a fight at the uh, WTO 
on the issue of uh, copyright and trademark, trying to give an exemption to India, South Africa, other countries to be able to produce without worrying about copyright, but it's failed so far. Patent. Well, patent. You see, India, South Africa, and four other countries brought a case in the WTO saying that, look, this is a pandemic. This is a public health crisis. You have to actually just remove the patents on these because these are life-saving and they're essential. So all COVID-19 related drugs and vaccines should not be subject to patent. Okay, that was the argument. The rich countries immediately, European Union, Switzerland, UK, and of course the US immediately stopped it. They have already stopped it on four occasions in the WTO. But you know, the WTO provisions, they allow for compulsory licensing. They say that if companies are using monopoly power and if there's a public health emergency, you should give licenses compulsorily to other producers. Otherwise, how are you ever going to vaccinate the whole population of the world? These companies don't have that production capacity. They want to restrict the production so that they can make more and more money. It's an insanity because if the countries of of the quote-unquote advanced countries... Uh, if they don't deal with vaccinating essentially the world, there's no end to this COVID because it's going to keep returning all, to all of these supposedly rich countries. I mean, they are rich, but supposedly advanced. Well, you know, in fact, insisting on these patents is actually bad for the people of the rich countries even now. Because let's face it, Moderna, all of its R&D costs for producing this vaccine were paid for public money. They got a massive subsidy. It paid for all of their costs. Um, uh, Pfizer, 80% of the costs were covered. So now they're still charging these high rates. How dare they charge these high prices? They should be allowed now to just distribute for free, really. So governments are paying for these very, very high rates when they've already paid for the whole drug development, all the R&D for these vaccines they've already paid for, and now they're buying at commercial rates. So this is actually something that even works against the people in developed countries. But just to make the point again, even if almost or everybody gets vaccinated in the developed countries, if people in the developing countries don't get vaccinated, it's, there's no, you know, it's not like there's going to be an end to all global travel here. This, it will never end because the people will keep bringing infections around the globe. That's right. And it's the short-sightedness and the narrow kind of blinkered approach that governments have in this, which is so opposite to what you must do to respond to a global pandemic. Well, it's it's hard to end on a positive <laughs> note here because it's pretty shitty. No, I think, but anyway. I, think positive. I want to come back to the farmers, Paul, hmm. because, you know, I do think that the, the way the Modi government has responded to all dissent typically is first you ignore it, then you start blaming them and say that they are um, you know, anti-national, they're terrorists, they're this, they're that, or that they've been manipulated by anti-nationals and they've been misled and so on. That They've tried all of that. It hasn't worked. And farmers in India are a very different piece of cake from getting after Muslims who are still a minority and who are relatively poor and you know less, shall we say, powerful. 
I think this time is going to be different. It's not going to be, be so easy to just wish them away and you know think that they, it will go. They, well, let me let me thinking, let me ask you one question: Amongst the farmers, is it a mix of Hindu and Muslims? Oh yes, and Sikh. Hmm. Sikhs are the is another kind of branch, another yeah. religion. There are a lot of Sikhs as well, and uh, among the farmers, it's also that they have a certain confidence that comes from the fact that they know that what they're doing is so essential for the country. They're producing food. They, you know, you can't just push them around in the and, same way. And, and are they getting support from the public? You know, again, media hype has meant that a lot of the middle classes and so on are definitely not in support. But yes, the ordinary people, rural India, everybody is supporting. Ordinary workers are supporting because they know that this is so important for them. And you cannot accuse them of being anti-national and terrorist and get away with it. So I think this time it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. They're very determined. They've come with months and months worth of supplies. They're braving it out in the bitter cold. 30 of them have died already during the protests, but they are sticking to it. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It won't be so easy for the Modi government to just wish them away. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Jayati. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please visit the website. Look for the information on the matching grant campaign.